You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. This episode is another in our regular series, taking an in-depth look at the SMFM pregnancy meeting. To find out more about the meeting, go to www.smfn.org or go to the AJP homepage at www.tima.com forward slash AJP. to the American Journal of Perinatology, SMFM podcast special series. The first author that we'll meet with today is Dr. Karina Schoen on behalf of her co-authors at the Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia and Christiana Care Health System in Newark, Delaware. She presented her oral presentation on their research entitled The Intracervical Foley Catheter with and Without Oxytocin for Labor Induction, a Randomized Trial. In this study, the authors set out to determine if among women who needed induction of labor, whether in both multiparous and nulliparous women, initiation of cervical ripening with Foley catheter with oxytocin versus Foley catheter alone resulted in faster times to delivery. They concluded that current Foley catheter and oxytocin infusion significantly increases the rate of delivery within 24 hours in both multiparous and multiparous women compared to Foley alone. Dr. Schoen, welcome and congratulations on your oral presentation. Thanks for joining us today on our podcast series. Thank you very much for having me. Can you tell our audience what were some of the reasons why you guys undertook this study? I initially started the study based on the initial trial that I presented today by Dr. Pecker and his colleagues that showed that there was no benefit from using Pitocin with a Foley catheter. I saw that it was inconsistently being used, and I thought, well, I'm going to disprove that this (laughs) works, and then we can stop using Pitocin for everybody. And so I surprised myself. And the whole, I think, idea, right, is is what's the most efficient way to get people into labor and and where you have to... So the specific aim of your study or your So our specific um, objective was to determine if we added oxytocin at the start of cervical ripening with the Foley catheter, whether that would increase the rate of delivery within 24 hours. We had a planned secondary outcome also of total time from induction to delivery. So what were your most exciting findings from your study? So we found that if you started your induction with a Foley catheter and oxytocin right from the beginning, that it did not matter if you were nulliparous or multiparous, that if you received the combined method, you were more likely to deliver within 24 hours. You had a decrease in total time from induction to delivery, and also were more likely to have a vaginal delivery within 24 hours, which was really nice to see. Everybody's interested in, in can this cause any complications or infection, or is this more likely to have a vaginal delivery or C-section? Did you guys look at things like that? Yeah, we looked at C-section rate, which was no different um, in the two groups. We looked at secondary outcomes, including postpartum hemorrhage, chorioamnionitis, meconium, and NICU admission. There was no difference, but of course we weren't empowered to look at those outcomes, and so I'm hoping that now with four trials comparing this, that we can actually start to get it down to the nitty-gritty on whether those secondary outcomes are really there or not. So what would you tell the practicing obstetrician or MFM, how would you use this information? So personally, if I have a woman who has to have a medically indicated induction, has to be in the hospital that a combined method should really be considered. You know, whether that's Foley and Pitocin or Foley and a prostaglandin, I, I think that still remains up in the air. 
Um, but for women who can't get a prostaglandin for some reason, certainly adding a secondary agent um, to speed up time to delivery is important. What are your next avenue of research for the from this topic, or what what should happen in the next for the next studies? So I um, have a particular passion for labor inductions. That's it affects twenty three percent of pregnant women in the United States, and so I'm very interested actually in the upcoming topic of induction at thirty nine weeks versus expected management, especially for the high risk groups. Um, and so I'm looking forward to doing some prospective randomized trials in that area at my institution. Well, we look forward to seeing those uh, in the coming years at SMFM. Thanks very much again for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So we are joined by Antonio Frias, who presented Oral Abstract 28, First Trimester Alcohol Exposure Alters Pulsinal Perfusion and Fetal Oxygen Availability Affecting Fetal Growth and Development in a Non-Human Primate Model. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So tell us a little bit about the idea of looking at alcohol in pregnancy in your model. Well, as you know, 40% of pregnant women consume alcohol, primarily due to the fact that there are so many unplanned pregnancies, and many women don't know that they're pregnant until four to six weeks post-conception. So we sought to investigate whether chronic early exposure in the first trimester would be associated with longer-term impacts on placental function, placental oxygenation, and most importantly, on fetal growth and and fetal brain development. And the rationale for doing this is the the fact that there are many preclinical studies uh, showing that alcohol has like vasopressor effects on on the vasculature. So that was the rationale for looking at blood flow and, and oxygenation. So how did you go about measuring these changes? So we, we've developed some new technology as part of the, of the Human Placenta Project, which uh, we'll be testing in human trials um, to, to try and help us identify the you know, number of spiral arteries in our early pregnancy, which allows us to quantify blood flow directly. Number two, it allows us to look at oxygen delivery to the fetus, um, which we will do early in pregnancy and then longitudinally in our human studies. And so we sought to implement some of, some of this advanced technology in our, our non-human primate model of uh, ethanol exposure. The nice thing about this model is it retains um, the route of consumption of the alcohol, so it's orally administered. And macaques have similar developmental ontogeny to humans, including placental structure and function. That's very interesting. So in this model, do they metabolize alcohol in a similar mechanism as humans? Great question, and the answer is absolutely. Um, this is a very well-characterized um, a model, which has primarily been used to investigate the neurologic behavior and how animals, and potentially humans, become addicted to alcohol. So yes, the metabolism is very similar. And we made the study using alcohol doses that would be equivalent to about you know six drinks per day. So okay. by their blood alcohol uh, levels. So what was found, there was actually not just an acute effect, but there was a prolonged effect from alcohol exposure. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's, this is what was so interesting. Um, so in a macaque pregnancy, the, the term is about 168 for rhesus macaques. The alcohol was stopped on gestational day 60. And then we looked at placental function, and but which we measured by blood flow and oxygen delivery, 50 days and 75 days since last exposure. And what we demonstrated was 
decrease blood flow and decrease oxygenation and what we like to call um, the fetal oxygen availability in the placenta you know, 50 days after the last exposure and and um, even more interesting when we looked at the brain using some um, some new um, diffusion-weighted imaging that's been developed by uh, my close collaborator, Chris Kronke. Um, it showed that there was a significant cortical gray matter disruption in the alcohol-exposed animals. So again, 50 days since last, last exposure. That's very interesting. So did you find any evidence that placental remodeling took place beyond the time of exposure? Were there any changes? That's another great question, another surprising finding from, from this, um, this study. When we looked at 75 days after exposure, so just day 135, the blood flow and oxygenation to the placenta seemed to improve, meaning it had gone back to what, what we measured in the control animals. And to explain this, when we looked at our data, the ethanol-exposed animals had fewer spiral arteries initially at G110. We're still in the process of analyzing you know, the spiral artery, like um, to look specifically at spiral artery remodeling, but what it does suggest, at least, is that there are um, adaptive mechanisms for the placenta in order to maintain blood flow and oxygen delivery. We had had prior evidence of that from our mm -hmm. earlier non-human primate studies where we lie. The macaque placentas have two lobes, mm -hmm. um, and when you ligate them, it decreases the surface area and function okay. about 40%. We, about five years ago, you know, published a study when we did that early in pregnancy, the placenta was able to remodel and maintain fetal growth. But when you did it later, it was not. Um, and then it, it hypertrophied, somewhat like we see in the big, big placentas. Sure, um, sure. Uh, so, so we think there are mechanisms there we don't fully understand. When we did that original study, we didn't have the technology available right. to start doing these things. But it's something that we're going to actively investigate in this right. model. Are you able to see an alcohol phenotype? in the offspring of the macaque that's been exposed to alcohol? Yeah, it's a, again, an, an, another great question. So this is something that we're going to look at. Sure. Um, but this, this uh, alcohol model has been established using mostly adults to examine adult and even um, late juvenile behavior in terms of addiction spectrum. And this really is the first you know, fetal pregnancy study utilizing this model. Um, and part of it was a proof of concept, like if we exposed do we see injury and now we now we do so what we're going to do in the next studies will be longitudinal studies mm -hmm. then linking that that disrupted neurologic development and investigate whether the behavioral and functional outcomes that you would expect um, from the alcohol exposure so this is this is certainly a, a, an investigation right for translation Yes. So what do you think of the translational benefit of knowing this information? I, I think in some ways the big message is that we should really strengthen our counseling. I think it, it again uh, highlights the importance that women thinking of conceiving, planning to conceive, or if there's any chance they have conceived, should not be drinking alcohol because there's risk there. So, so I, I think it only highlights the importance of the, the time spent on that counseling. From a understanding developmental biology and placental function, I think it makes us feel encouraged by this technology that we've developed that I think has the potential to help us understand not only normal placental 
function and development, but uh, the identification of you know at-risk groups. Right. So if if we can do that better, then that will help us in our search for biomarkers, or those peripheral biomarkers that we can link to, you know, a, a real in vivo functional endpoint. And number two, you know, if we know better about normal biology, and then understand truly what's causing the abnormal biology, I think we can be more uh, intelligent in our therapeutic design, in our stratification of patients for clinical trials. Absolutely. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The next investigator is Kelly Ruth Stoller from Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. On behalf of her co-authors, she presented their work entitled prophylactic wound vacuum therapy after cesarean section to prevent wound complications in the obese population, a randomized control trial. Their objective was to determine whether placement of a negative pressure wound therapy system lowered the rate of wound complications among obese pregnant women undergoing unscheduled cesarean delivery. They randomized women to receive the wound vac or usual pregnancy care. They found a lower than expected rate of wound infection and demonstrated that in this small series that the negative pressure wound vac system did not result in significant reduction in the number of post-operative wound complications compared to standard wound care. Dr. Ruth Stoller, thank you very much for joining us today and congratulations on your uh, oral presentation here at SMFM. Thank you very much. It's great to be able to talk to you. Can you just give our readers a quick sort of reason or rationale for why you guys decided to do this study? Um, So the reason that we chose to do this study is because of the significance of a wound infection or wound complication. From both a financial perspective, it can be very expensive to treat and take care of these patients, but also because, um, you know, a new mother has a unique situation where she's learning to adapt to a newborn and needs to be uh, with the newborn, and so any sort of complication really adds to the inconvenience um, of that uh, situation. And so the specific aim of your study was to... The specific aim of our study was um, really to look at uh, the Provena device. Um, It's come out in the last few years and has been adopted by some obstetric practices. Um, Unfortunately, there really hasn't been um, much in the way of prospective um, studies in the obstetric population because the device is expensive. We did want to look to see uh, if there was some utility in using this device. Um, Now, our study was a feasibility study. Um, The purpose of that was because there is so literature out there, we wanted to be able to um, determine what the actual rates of infection were um, with the device, the feasibility of placing and using the device, and then um, our ultimate goal, obviously, is to inform a larger appropriately powered trial. What was the most exciting finding or most important finding from your study? Um, I think that the the most important thing that we found was, um, overall, even in the control group, the low rates of infection. Um, Truly, when you look at the, the literature, especially the, the more historical literature, it appears um, that there should be higher rates of infection. Our uh, sample size was based off of a 10% um, infection or complication rate in the routine group. Um, and in our study, our overall rate of infection or complication was actually um, just under 6%. And this is consistent with some of the other recent literature looking at surgical site complications. And so I think that it was important both to inform for a future trial, but also to um, review the efficacy of some of the other interventions that have been put into place, such as timing of antibiotics, um, closure of subcutacular tissue, and also um, skin preparation agents. 
how do we use this information going forward? What should the practicing obstetrician do with your great work? Oh, thank you. Um, so I think that the, the, the goal of our study was to inform a larger appropriately powered trial. So that would certainly be um, one of the primary goals. But as far as the general um, obstetrician or, or practicing obstetrician could use this data, um, again, as I mentioned, the device is expensive. And so um, because there is so little literature informing um, the efficacy of the device, I think that um, perhaps you know pausing or really reviewing whether or not um, use of the device without appropriate literature is really a good idea. Thank you again very much for joining us, and congratulations again, and uh, good luck as your career kind of moves on. Thank you very much. It was really nice to talk to you. Our next investigator today is Oscar A. Viteri. On behalf of his co-authors from the Department of OBGYN, McGovern Medical School at UT Health Houston, who presented their paper on should non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs be avoided in puperial hypertensive women. These authors set out to investigate the hypothesis that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications could have an adverse effect on increasing systolic and diastolic blood pressure following delivery in patients with severe preeclampsia. In their retrospective cohort, they did not demonstrate any difference in the incidence of severe hypertension defined as systolic blood pressure greater than 150 or diastolic blood pressure greater than 100 in women with severe preeclampsia 24 hours after delivery who received non anti-inflammatory medications compared to those who did not receive non anti-inflammatory medications. Dr. Viteri, congratulations on your oral presentation here today at SMFM, and thanks for joining us on our podcast series today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Can you just describe for us what the impetus for doing this research was? Absolutely. Currently, and uh, it's been going for several decades now, the opioid epidemic in the United States is just a major health concern. It affects pregnant, non-pregnant women, and obviously when pregnant women are exposed to these opioids, it can also affect the offspring. So since I was a resident, uh, it always bothered me this fact that why cannot we use a medication that's proven to be safe during breastfeeding that can also be effectively controlling pain and try to minimize the use of these other medications such as narcotics that can pose a problem later on. And uh, once the task force came out and uh, we're looking at references for this and looking at articles that were um, published on the topic, we couldn't find much. So the idea was born there. Right. So the recommendations that came out to say be cautious about using these in hypertensive patients, um, you know, sort of led to let's really see what the evidence is behind that. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. So what was the main aim of this study? We wanted to put the the recommendations to a population that we can easily grasp information from. So basically, if if, if we're suggested not to use uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs after the first 24 hours in anybody that has hypertension, regardless of the condition that they have. Are we going to be able to show that there is a difference in the rates of persistent hypertension versus those who didn't receive it? And we chose patients with severe preeclampsia. We have a database that we've been constructing over the years at Memorial Hermann, and um, we, we figured that in, if the, in this subset of patients that are the sickest ones, we don't show a difference, then we may be able to extrapolate this data. And the primary outcome was this, to see if we are actually reaching that threshold of suggested treatment by ACOG, which is a systolic blood pressure of 150 and or a diastolic blood pressure of 100 in the postpartum period. Mm-hmm. So what were the most important findings in your study? 
Well, this is a retrospective cohort study. So based on keeping this in mind, what we found is that patients who were exposed to NSAIDs from 24 hours after delivery until hospital discharge and who had the, uh, the diagnosis of preeclampsia with severe features prior to delivery did not have a significant increase in persistent postpartum hypertension that required treatment, meaning reaching the threshold for treatment, compared to those who did not receive NSAIDs. Was there any difference in those who were on blood pressure medicine or not on blood pressure medicine between the non-steroidal group and the not non-steroidal That is an excellent question. We did abstract information on those who, of those patients who were admitted and were already on medications and we evaluated whether they needed an additional medication or if patients who were not on, uh, on any medications required antihypertensive therapy after delivery based on the use of steroids and there was no difference. Another point that we made emphasis on is that in the non-pregnant population, the literature is very strong saying that NSAIDs are associated with worsening hypertension in patients with long-standing chronic hypertension, usually elderly, with multiple comorbidities, that are on antihypertensive treatment, particularly those with uh, ACE inhibitors and uh, beta blockers. Calcium channel blockers, on the other hand, appear to be safe and, and not be affected within, with this interaction. So we tested this on our pregnant on, on our postpartum patients. And contrary to non-pregnant population, patient, patients who were on labetalol did not have any increased rates of persistent postpartum hypertension that required treatment. And as expected, NSAIDs did not affect patients who were on nifedipine. I think that, again, it's a retrospective limited study take precautions, these recommendations based on the fact that during those four and a half days on average that patients have stayed um, in the hospital after delivery, the use of NSAIDs is not chronic. You're not using this for many years. So before the time period we studied, this is the results we found. Wonderful. So what would your take-home points be for the in the trenches, MFM or obstetrician? How do you use this information now? Absolutely. So we are not meaning to change practice based on our retrospective study. I think that it is something to think about in, given the fact that we have so many health issues and health concerns with opioid addiction currently and based on the effectiveness of NSAIDs for this kind of problem. Four million women deliver every year. Four million women have pain after delivery. And I think it's a potential safe and effective medication. And until we have more, you know, stronger data on the basis of a randomized clinical trial that's adequate power, I think that um, we should not get away from just using those in these type of patients. Mm -hmm. Congratulations again on your oral presentation. Thank you very much again for joining us today. We wish the best for you in the future. I hope to see you back up there next year. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Congratulations. So today we are joined by Dr. Amy Vallant, who presented Oral Plenary Session 1, Abstract 1, entitled Postoperative Prophylactic Oral Antibiotics for Preventing Surgical Site Infections in Obese Women Undergoing Cesarean Deliveries, a Randomized Control Trial. So we're very excited to have you with us after your presentation to the entire Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine on the opening session of our meeting. Thank you very much. I'm honored to have this opportunity. Your presentation is certainly very timely. We are seeing increasing cesarean delivery rates, and of course you looked at a very targeted population for which there is an increasing rate of obesity in the United States. 
tell me a little bit about what led to the idea to pursue this investigation and how you chose your antibiotic regimen. So at our institution at the University of Cincinnati, we have a very high prevalence of obesity. And we had had just an anecdotal observation that we had a higher than national average rate of surgical site infections. And when we actually broke down who was having the complications of surgical site infections, it was among our obese population. So we found that it was very imperative just to be able to care for our specific population better to study what we can do to improve their outcomes. And so we decided to choose cefalexin and metronidazole for a few different reasons, actually. The prior studies that have looked at surgical site infections and prevention strategies to try to reduce those rates have looked at different antibiotic regimens, but those were given preoperatively, and they've looked at skin incisions and closures and certain surgical preparations, which have all led to some really great observations um, and associations, which we have implemented in our institution but still continued to see high rates of infection. And therefore, we decided to look a little bit outside of the box and started to look at trauma literature and other disciplines that have other high rates of infections after operations and had noticed that some other disciplines had looked at postoperative courses of antibiotics to try to reduce their infection rates. So we decided to take that approach. And cephalexin is a broad-spectrum antibiotic and covers lots of typical skin flora. Um, The difference with cesarean deliveries, obviously, and particularly women who are laboring or may have their bag of water ruptured, they have vaginal flora that may also complicate infectious rates as well. And we know that metronidazole is a really good, not only anaerobe bacterial coverage, but also covers many species of bacteria that are in the vagina, such as urea plasma, mycoplasma, and gardnerella. So it really covered the depth of bacteria that could potentially cause surgical site infections. Now, this was a single site, randomized control trial. It started, it looks like, in September of 2010 and, and can included around December of 2015. So anytime we have a study that extends over a period of time like that, did you have any problems with the changing standard of care during the time the study was ongoing? You're absolutely correct. That's one of the lovely things about scientific literature is that we're always trying to make things better. And so before the study inception, we looked at the most evidence-based material that was out there in order to standardize how we performed our cesarean sections. Probably the most impactful thing about the way that we decided to perform the study was that there was there was actually no prior literature that specifically identified prevention strategies specifically for obese women. And therefore, we kept up with the mindset that we will protocolize our surgical regimens. And then since we're targeting a very specific population, that we will continue to do so throughout the study period. We did have trouble, however, with some recruitment in the area of women who had their bag of water broke prior to delivery. For those women, they're at very high risk of developing chorioamnionitis, and that was an exclusion for our study. And so that was an arm that was unfortunately very difficult to recruit. However, it was that arm specifically, even though we had very a, a more difficult time to recruit, to recruit that population that we actually saw a more significant benefit also. So it is interesting when you when you take this study on and you're going to give the post 
cesarean antibiotic regimen, certainly you took the approach of randomization as well as stratification of that group for membrane rupture versus no membrane rupture. Now, how did you define surgical site infection in your study? We followed the National Healthcare Safety Network Center for Disease Control Criteria, which broadly defines uh, surgical site infections as any incisional which includes either superficial or deep incisional infection, as well as organ and space infections. So following delivery, what period of time did you follow patients for to define whether surgical site infection was present or absent? At our institution, it's standardized for women to follow up two weeks after their delivery for us to evaluate their incision, and then the standard six-week postpartum evaluation. According to the National Healthcare Safety Network's Center for Disease Control Criteria, a Surgical site infection is actually an infection that's recognized within 30 days of the actual operation. And so we had a couple opportunities to be able to identify women that would have a surgical site infection. So your study investigators are to be congratulated on a great follow-through in your enrolling population. There were 405 women enrolled. It looks like 203 received oral antimicrobials, uh, the study regimen specifically, and then 202 received placebo. There were only 22 patients lost to follow-up, so that's, that's spectacular. Now, you report an overall rate of surgical site infection of 11.7%. Tell me how that differed between those patients who had rupture of membranes versus those that did not. And then what was the effect of the intervention in this case of using the cephalaxin and oral metronidazole following delivery compared to those that received the placebo in this obese population? So when we looked at the specific arms of stratification, the women with intact membranes had an overall prevalence of infection of approximately 7%, and the women with rupture of membranes prior to delivery had an overall prevalence of 21%. And when we looked at the women within the intact arm of who received cephalexin and metronidazole. They actually did not, were not statistically different from the women who received placebo. However, in the ruptured membrane arm, the overall prevalence was 21%. However, in the ruptured arm that received cephalexin and metronidazole, their rates of infection was 10%. However, compared to a 33% in the placebo group, the cephalexin and metronidazole all group benefited for a reduction in surgical site infection compared to those who received placebo. Did you see any adverse effects of the use of expanding your period of time for antimicrobial coverage or any other uh, adverse outcomes? So that is something that clearly was very important for us to follow. And uh, the most common side effect that women experienced was nausea, but women had the option to voluntarily withdraw from the study, but none of the women ever reported that the nausea was severe enough that they either required additional medication or wanted to withdraw from the study. Otherwise, we had no other significant adverse outcomes. So in your institution, one of the other things we've looked at in obese women is the type of incision, whether it's a vertical incision or a fan and steel skin incision. Were you able to make any observations about the healing of the incision between these two groups? And what was the what was the primary mode of delivery? Was it fan and steel or vertical in these cases? So for the overall cohort, the majority, over 90% of the women, received a fan and steel skin incision. We did 
do a secondary sub-analysis to determine if fan and steel skin incision reduce the rates of surgical site infections as previous studies have shown in other populations. And certainly there was a, a significant reduction in surgical site infections with fan and steel over other skin incision types. So I think it's very interesting. You've taken a population that certainly we're all very concerned about when going into the operative environment to perform a cesarean. We know that these women are at higher risk after a rupture of membranes, and the obesity epidemic continues in America, and also the cesarean rate is increasing. So taking all of this information that you've gained from this investigation, how are you going to change your practice going forward in patients who are obese who are going into a cesarean? Certainly what I think that this this study has highlighted is that obese women are at very high risk for surgical site infections. We were underpowered in this study to specifically look at women with intact membranes, and particularly women with intact membranes who underwent labor. And therefore, I don't think that this study can conclude specifically in that obese population with intact membranes prior to delivery what the best management strategy is for them to decrease the risk for surgical site infections. Certainly, the women with rupture of membranes prior to delivery significantly had a reduction in surgical site infections with this postpartum prevention strategy and therefore may significantly benefit in the future for women with these types of risk factors and should be considered. We want to congratulate you on your work. It was an excellent presentation and, and certainly is a clinically changing presentation. Thank you very much. This is Chris Robinson interviewing Dr. Amy Vallant who presented oral abstract number one from the oral plenary session on Thursday, January 26th. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Dr. Lauren Thalen, on behalf of her co-authors from the University of Utah Health Sciences Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, presented their work entitled Long-Term Mortality Risk and Life Expectancy Following Recurrent Hypertensive Disease of Pregnancy. In this study, the authors used a cohort of births from 1939 to 2012 using the Utah Population Database. They sought to determine whether the presence of hypertensive disease during pregnancy was associated with an increased risk of early mortality and shorter lifespans. The authors found that recurrent hypertensive disease of pregnancy was significantly associated with an increased risk of all-cause mortality as well as mortality due to diabetes, ischemic heart disease, and stroke. In addition, they also found those with greater than one pregnancy complicated by hypertensive disease of pregnancy had shorter life expectancies assessed from the time of the index childbirth than mothers who had only one pregnancy or zero pregnancies complicated by hypertensive disease of pregnancy. They concluded that women with a history of hypertensive disease of pregnancy have increased mortality risk and decreased life expectancy compared to women without a history of hypertensive disease of pregnancy. Congratulations on your uh, oral presentation this morning. Thank you very much. Can you tell our readers, our audience, um, a, a little bit about why you guys undertook this study? Sure. I think there's growing awareness in recent years that pregnancy can serve as a sort of stress test and give us some insight as to populations of women who are going to be at risk for bad health outcomes down the road. And hypertensive disease of pregnancy is one of those conditions that's um, associated with a lot of um, chronic disease and early mortality. And so the aim, the specific aim of your study or the main plan for your study? We wanted to look at the effects of having more than one pregnancy complicated by hypertensive disease and see if that was associated with any changes in the mortality risk. 
What were some of your ex- most exciting findings? Or um, so we did find that um, having more than one pregnancy with hypertensive disease um, increases your risk for mortality and decreases your life expectancy. And I think the most noteworthy finding was that we found that this association was strongest in women who were dying from chronic diseases before the age of 50. And that's important because a lot of women don't start being screened for the diseases that lead to these deaths until um, their late 40s or early 50s. How would you suggest sort of the general obstetrician or, or is there anybody else who should be using this information in their care of, care of patients? Yeah. Some organizations like the um, American Heart Association and ACOG both have recognized hypertensive disease of pregnancy as um, a potential risk factor that warrants early screening for cardiovascular disease. But people are not, in a widespread fashion, um, screening these women early. Um, so I think it's important to disseminate our findings, um, to do further work to further characterize women who are at risk and when they're at risk, so that primary care providers can provide appropriate screening. I think somehow getting that information that we all know as obstetricians is important from their pregnancy, getting that into the hands of the primary care physician sometimes is, is a little bit challenging. Right. Where are you going next with this? What uh, Do you have future future projects or plans? We do. Um, we would like to follow these women prospectively. There are several people um, around the world who have opened maternal health clinics to try to follow these women long term and see if they can uh, make improvements in maternal health. Um, and we're also interested in looking more specifically at morbidity as opposed to mortality um, to get some um, better characteristics of these women at their risk. All right. Congratulations again on your presentation. Thank you very much for joining us on our podcast this morning. Thank you very much. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about the journal at www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next time. Thank you.